Good morning. It is good to be here before you all. Uh, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. That will be our text for today, Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> I tell you, I had to uh, pivot a little bit this week. I had planned on uh, preaching from a different text. I was going to preach from the the book of James, count it all joy. But once Pastor Joe started preaching last week, he started talking about joy. I'm like, okay, he's probably just going to mention a few things. And now he went in on joy. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have to uh, pivot here. But then I'm like, okay, you know, just in, in, praying to the Lord, what should I, what should I speak about? Lord, what do you want me to say? Philippians, you know, I I went to Philippians and started to read there and I'm like, okay, I think I I, I found something to, uh, to preach on. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I think Luke just preached on Philippians not too long ago. So (laughs) like I'm in trouble, but I will tell you the uh, text today, uh, Philippians chapter 3, it is not the same text that Luke preached on. I believe it was maybe earlier this year or about a year ago around this same time. Um, but this just speaks to the unity between us as elders. This is something that we pray for. We try to keep up. We want to be faithful to the text of scripture. Sometimes we say the same things and that is not a bad thing. You'll even hear about that whenever we go through the, uh, the text today, but it just speaks to the unity. And I have to say that I truly do thank God for my, uh, my brothers in Christ and fellow elders in this fight. And I pray that, and I, I ask you as a congregation that you would continue to pray for us, you know, as we engage in the battle, as we try to faithfully shepherd the flock, pray for us, pray for our families, that they would be protected as we engage in the battle and do the things that the Lord has called for us to do. We uh, celebrated my wife's birthday yesterday. I thank God for her, and I just pray that you would continue to keep her in prayer. She is realizing now what it takes and what it means for myself being called as an elder, and she is doing a wonderful job submitting to the Lord and realizing the call of the Lord. But I do ask that you would continue to pray for her strength as well. All right, Philippians chapter three. So this letter to the Philippians is one that takes on a warm pastoral tone in the address of the matters at hand. It is a very encouraging letter to the believers at Philippi. The the recipients of this letter would have been encouraged by the things that the Apostle Paul wrote to them. Uh, this letter, it, it shows the progress from Paul's initial encounter in Macedonia, where he and Silas were beaten and imprisoned. Acts 16 tells us about that. 
But Paul was writing this letter to them as fellow brethren in the faith. This is where the first church was planted in Europe. And it was to this church that he was addressing this letter. Now, we will pick up in chapter three of the letter today with an eye on moving forward in faith, moving forward in faith. And the things that we will discuss today, uh, the tone for faith. We'll discuss that. We will also discuss how we proceed with caution. We'll also discuss uh, how we can look to when, whenever there is a, a loss, how to suffer loss to gain an infinite and eternal reward. We'll also discuss focusing on the goal, and then following the example. These are things that we will discuss today. Uh, let's read the text. We will pray and then continue on in worship. So starting in verse 1, it says this, and I'm reading from the NASB. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have become already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, and if 
in anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in my in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word, to stand, Lord, here before you. I thank you, God, for the privilege to preach to your flock, but I pray, Lord, that you would increase and that I would decrease. I pray, Lord, that you would not allow for me to say anything that perverts your word. I pray that you would be exalted in what is preached today and that everyone would be edified by your word. And it's in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, so we see we have a lot here before us, 21 verses. And, you know, the heart of us as preachers, my heart is expositional preaching, but there is no way that I can go through all 21 verses and tell you all that this text has to say. (laughs) I see Leela and Laney laughing at me, but (laughs) there is no way that we can do this. So it's going to be a summary of, of, sorts, but I hope that you are encouraged by what is said here in the text. So the tone for faith, I said this was the first thing that we were going to look at, the tone for faith. Verse one, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Rejoice, that is setting the tone for faith. This is an apostolic command given by the Apostle Paul to rejoice in the Lord. Paul's attitude was that no matter what the situation is, we should rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in joy is one theme of this letter. The word rejoice is mentioned eight times. The word joy, seven times. But this is the first time in this letter that it is given as a command to rejoice in the Lord. The other time is in chapter four, verse four, where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Other times that the word rejoice is mentioned, Paul is speaking of personal rejoicing or is inviting the recipients of the letter to join him in rejoicing or to share in his joy as in chapter 2 verses 17 and 18. Here again though, he gives the specific command to rejoice in the Lord. So what does it mean to rejoice? 
and specifically to rejoice in the Lord. First, let's take a look at a simple definition of the word rejoice. Then we'll turn to scripture to help us out with some examples of rejoicing in the Lord. As a simple definition, the word rejoice is this. Uh, the meaning is this, to experience joy and gladness in a high degree, to be exhilarated with lively and pleasurable sensations, to exalt. That is good enough for today. Fair enough. That That is the uh, meaning of the word rejoice. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2. It says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And to that, I have to say, what better rulership for us to be under than the rule and reign of the Lord and King Jesus Christ, where groans are exchanged for the joy of the Lord, who is our strength. So we rejoice in the Lord. But what does that mean? Let's look to scripture. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 10. If you want to write that down, it says this. It says, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. So to rejoice in the Lord means that you glory in his name. Your heart is glad. This isn't something that is superficial. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. It says, do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So to rejoice in the Lord, you know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's part of rejoicing in him. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10. It says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. To rejoice in the Lord, you know that you are clothed with the garments of salvation, so you greatly rejoice and take joy in that. It is a a joy that is inexpressible that you exercise toward the Lord. One more, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. It says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So to rejoice in the Lord means that the Lord whom you do not see physically, you love him, you believe in him, and you joyfully praise him. So as a point of application, to move forward in faith, you must first have the proper attitude within yourself. You cannot faithfully move forward with a going along to get along type of attitude. You must recognize the object of your faith. Believer, it is no secret that the object of your faith is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and him alone, and we can move forward by faith in him. Rejoice in the Lord. 
Now, a few more quick points about this verse. Paul says that to write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. This shows his pastoral heart. This letter is pastoral in nature, and he is reminding them of things that he has told them before. What Paul is about to say to the Philippian readers is a reminder of something that he possibly said to them when he was with them before, or possibly even a letter that he had written to them, or something of that nature. All things considered, this is not the first time that they are taking this message in. He also says that it is to protect. The purpose of the reminder is for their protection. So again, very pastoral in his approach. Peter used the same same kind of language of reminding uh, in in. Second Peter chapters one and three regarding reminding the flock. He used similar language. So it should not ever be a burden for pastors to remind the flock of old truths, uh, that are contained in scripture. God's word is tried and true. It is rich with, with truth, but there is a tendency to forget those truths that are in God's word. So what do we do? We remind whenever someone forgets. We remind about the richness of God's word, the promises that are in his word, the assurances that scripture provides, and the warnings that it gives also. We should be eager to remind you of these things. It is the job of the pastor to remind the congregation of truths that have already been taught. It should not be a burden. Some things may be said in different ways at times, but the truth remains the same. When it comes to the tried and tested truth of Scripture, we should be wary of new things that are introduced and those who promote such things against the stated truth of Scripture. Now, that is part of the reason why Paul is warning the Philippians. So now let us move on to proceeding with caution. Verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Beware, beware, beware. This is what he's saying. Beware of false teachers. Who were the false teachers that he was speaking of? The common agreement is that they were Judaizers who promoted the law in addition to the gospel. They perverted the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ by adding to it. Paul did not focus on who they were, per se, in this letter, but what they were. He called them dogs, evil workers, the false circumcision. Strong words for sure, but they were delivered by him with strategic intent. Dogs in that day were not viewed as the trained household pets that some of you have today. No, they were viewed in particular by the Jews and Gentiles as filthy animals. 
The prophet Isaiah used similar language in Isaiah 56.10, calling people dogs. Paul may have been drawing on this language. Evil workers. These were people who adulterated the pure message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which teaches faith alone in him for salvation. These evil workers added requirements to the teaching of faith alone for salvation. False circumcision. They relied on the physical act of circumcision as requirements for salvation. Now, what was the strategy of Paul's words when he, when he called them dogs, evil workers, false circumcision? These words were delivered in irony to the Judaizers who had disdain for dogs. Paul is saying, you are the dogs. You are not promoting good, but you are working evil by perverting the pure, unadulterated message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the in the, in the case of circumcision, you have it all wrong. You are the false circumcision, he says, in a play on words. Paul uses a word in the Greek that is similar to the word for circumcision. The word he uses is concision, C-O-N-C-I-S-I-O-N, concision. That is the word that he uses, which means to mutilate. So what is Paul saying here in his play on words? He is saying that these Judaizers who are relying on the cutting of flesh as a requirement for salvation are cutting or tearing up the unity in the church with their false message. That is at least what they were attempting to do. Paul warns them. In verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is saying that those who are true Jews, who are the true Israel, do not focus on outward signs such as the cutting of the flesh or other ceremonies, but on the inward transformation which begins with the circumcision of the heart. And again, this is familiar language that we've heard in recent weeks, right? John chapter 4, verse 24, it says this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Romans chapter 2, verse 29, it says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but God. The worshipers that God seeks are those who worship him in spirit and truth, not those who cut the flesh, not those who add fleshly acts to salvation that has already been provided through Christ. Beware of the flesh. This is our next subpoint. Beware of the flesh, verses 4 through 6. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. 
See, though the Apostle Paul is warning against the practices of false teachers who were trying to make inroads in Philippi, it appears that there is a twofold purpose to what he is saying. In one breath, it seems that he is saying, this is what the Judaizers do. Yet at the same time, it looks like he is issuing a warning to his own readers saying, you take care to not do the same by relying on your flesh. Beware of placing confidence in the flesh. The Apostle Paul gave his credentialed list as a way of saying, if anyone is able to boast in the flesh, it is me. Someone would be hard-pressed to match the accomplishments that he had laid out there. Now, I will not go through and describe Paul's credentials given there, There is definitely a place for that discussion, and we have heard that, again, in recent weeks. But, again, uh, what we we will look at today is what Paul means by the flesh. We're not going to look at all of the, uh, the, the credentials that he laid out, but what does he mean by the flesh? He mentioned the flesh three times in the text before us today. So, Let's take a look at what it is and what the phrase in the flesh means. So what is flesh and being in the flesh at its base level? It is a lack of personal relationship with the Lord. It is a focusing on external privileges and not inward transformation by the spirit of God. See, when we think of the flesh, it is easy to Think of only the deeds of the flesh, which the Apostle Paul spells out in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. He talks about immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of these things certainly are in opposition to the spirit. However, when the apostle Paul gave his list of credentials, he did not mention any of these matters and not that they did not count as a matter of the flesh. But if we look at the things that the apostle Paul did mention all of his accomplishments, I think that it forces us to look on a whole at what the flesh truly is. When considering what Paul has laid out here, we are shown that the flesh is not only the gross acts of immorality or drunkenness or jealousy. Being in the flesh does not only consider man at his worst, but also man at his best. Paul specifically mentioned aspects of his life which showed that he was at the pinnacle of moral and religious development. He was at the top of his game. When considering his true state in the eyes of God, however, he realized that his accomplishments were nothing. 
In fact, they all showed just how far apart from God that he really was. One commentator said this in regard to Paul's pre-conversion credentials. He said, nevertheless, it was all flesh. For flesh defines the whole life of any and every man, woman, and child who is without living personal acquaintance with Jesus Christ. It suits those who have sunk lowest in sin and those that have risen, those who have risen highest in moral, religious, and spiritual rank. See, this considers in totality what it means to be in the flesh. The highest highs and the lowest lows of living without Christ. So when he rescues sinners, it is just as dramatic when he saves the best of sinners as it is when he saves the worst of sinners. Both spectrums of life wanted nothing to do with God. They were enemies of his. And the effectual call of the gospel caused them in their condition to turn to God away from their wicked sin through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Another point of application. In order to move forward in faith, you must be aware, saints, of the dangers that lie ahead. These days, there is no shortage of false prophets and teachers perverting the message of Christ and God's gospel. And I wish that I could spend time talking about them by name. There are so many that are rising up that they need to be addressed, but time will not permit that today. However, Beware of those who add to or take away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Another point of application to move forward in faith, you must beware of placing any confidence in your flesh in matters of salvation and pleasing God. See, this comes only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. There is no room for confidence in the flesh. See, this is a true threat to your joy placing confidence in your flesh when you depend on yourself or any false teaching that the opponents of the gospel promote, there is a threat to your joy because you have taken your eye off of the object of our faith, believer. It's Jesus Christ focused on, focus on him. Next point. Suffer the loss to gain the infinite and eternal reward. 
suffer the loss to gain the infinite and eternal reward. Verses 7 through 11, it says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. All of the things that were gained to the apostle Paul in terms of religious and moral development, he counted it all as loss. And not, he didn't do this as another act of religious performance, but far greater, he did it for the sake of Christ. He counted things as lost for the sake of Christ. Paul knew that to have Christ was to have far more than his religious self-righteous acts could acquire. The apostle Paul was speaking in accounting terms with his use of the words loss and gain. And we do not need to have a background in accounting to understand what the apostle is saying here. What he gained through acts of religious morality was counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, let's not make the mistake of thinking that the things that Paul counted as loss were never of any value to him. So he's just saying, I'll get rid of these because they don't, they don't matter to me anyway. Let's not make that mistake. These were things that defined his life, things in which he found his identity. He was circumcised the eighth day on the day according to the law. His lineage traced back to Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that stood with Judah after the split of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. He had a Hebrew father and Hebrew mother. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the strictest sect, as Acts chapter 26, verse 5 tells us. His zeal exceeded that even of the pharisaical requirement. There was not a requirement to persecute Christians as a Pharisee, but Paul's zeal drove him to do so. See, this is who he was. This was his identity. But one day, it all changed. In Acts chapter 9, turn with me there. It tells us, it shows us how dramatic that was, and I hope that we can see the the weight of the drama as we read through these verses. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, and then 16 through 22. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest 
and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight. And this is when he had the encounter with Ananias, and the Lord told Ananias about Saul and give, gave him the instruction regarding Saul against Ananias' apprehension. And verse 16, or verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Verse 16 says, then on to 17, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he in, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. See, this helps us to get a better understanding of what Paul is saying in the letter to the Philippians. So dramatic here is the effect of the conversion in the Lord that he says, not only the religious and moral things do I count as loss, but I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, all of the accounting ledgers in the world could not contain the value of knowing Christ Jesus. Eternity will not capture all of the glory of Christ, for he is God. He is infinite. His glory is infinite. And it is an infinite and eternal glory that will be enjoyed by his children forever. 
as the Lord said to the disciple Ananias in Acts 9.16, he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So the Lord did. And it is evident that the Lord showed him and that Paul faithfully accepted the call to suffer for Christ. As Paul says, he has suffered loss of all things to the degree that he counts them as excrement so that he may gain Christ. The fact that Paul says that he suffered loss indicates that he did at one period of time, in one period of time, value the things that he lost. But to say that he suffered also suggests that there was a degree of violence involved in the loss. How could there not be with such a great loss? This violence, however, was the crucifying of Paul's flesh with its passions and desires. As Galatians 5.24 says, he died to self, gaining Christ, and his desire was to be found in him, in Christ. He says in verse 9 that he may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul knew that his own righteousness would not cut it. In order to stand blameless before God, he knew that he needed the greatest righteousness that came through faith in Christ from God on the basis of faith in his son alone. See, what God requires, God supplies. Complete and total righteousness is the requirement. To be saved from God's wrath, you need Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to everyone who places their faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, Paul says this, verses 10 and 11, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, that I may know him. This speaks of a deep, intimate fellowship with Christ, not just a casual knowing about him in an acquaintance type of way, but knowing him in a salvific way as Savior, as Lord, as King, as friend. This is intimate knowledge and relationship with Christ and the power of his resurrection. See, it is the power of the resurrection that allowed for the apostle Paul to know who Christ is and in fact to even desire to know Christ. It is the power of the resurrection that was the cause for Paul's life in Christ. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelled in the apostle Paul. Galatians 2:20 I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave up himself for me. That is the Apostle Paul talking. The fellowship of his sufferings. Christ humbled himself, coming in the form of a man. He suffered, bled, and died so that his sheep may have life and have it abundantly. Mark down in your notes and read later, please. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, speaking of Christ humbling himself. Get this for yourselves. Understand what the Lord did. The apostle apostle Paul says this, being conformed to his death. What does this mean? See, Christ died on the cross. Paul knew that he must die to self and even suffer physical death if need be for the sake of Christ. And that he did. In order that I may attain, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, Paul traded confidence in the flesh for confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was so confident in Christ that he looked beyond death, beyond the grave, beyond the dwelling place where his soul after death to the resurrection of his body from the grave where his soul and body would be glorified, where they would meet and be glorified at Christ's return. That is total confidence in Christ. Verses 20 and 21, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of glory, of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That is the confidence that the Apostle Paul had. It went beyond the grave and looked to the resurrection of his body. Some points of application you must take into account for your lives. You must count the loss or or count and assess if you are truly willing to move forward in faith. Because it will cost you everything. To move forward in faith, you must be willing to lose everything that you may gain Christ. All of your success that you have built up for yourself, all that you have acquired, you must be willing to count it all as rubbish so that you may gain Christ. You must be willing to give it up if that is what he calls for you to do. Next point, Christ suffered. You too will suffer. Moving forward in faith means that you are willing to accept the fact that if you are in in Christ, then you too will suffer. You are willing to meet Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. Listen, Christ is no longer suffering. He is seated at the right hand of God where he rules and reigns while his enemies are being made a footstool under his feet. How then do we meet 
Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. We follow his example. That is what we do. First Peter chapter two, verses 21 through 25. Mark that down in your notes. It says this. It says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. See, when suffering, follow in the steps of Christ. Do not commit sin while suffering. Do not deceive while suffering. If you are reviled, which means to be verbally abused, do not revile in return. Do not utter threats and trust yourself to God who judges righteously. And in the words of James, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. For this must be your attitude, one of joy when you are moving forward in faith. Spiritual maturity will help you to accept the trials with joy. Focusing on the goal. Not, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul says, I press on toward the goal. See, this is not an aimless pursuit in knowing Christ. Paul knew that and looked forward to the prize. The imagery here is of that of an athlete who is focused on the finish line, intent on winning the highest prize. Let's take a runner, for example. This runner, after all of his training and qualifying for the games, makes it to the starting line to compete for the crown. And from the time that he takes his place behind the line, before the officials even say, on your mark, he is focused on the goal, probably envisioning himself winning the race and getting the crown. If you don't know or aren't familiar with Usain Bolt, maybe that's a, a, hopefully that's a recognizable name to you. He was one of the greatest track, track athletes of recent time. He uh, retired within the last five years, I believe. But see, he was so good that he would run and then ease up before he got over the finish line. This was more so in his early years, but that because he knew that he was going to win the race. Oftentimes, however, which carried through his whole career, he sometimes would look to the side at his opponents as he was approaching the finish line, knowing that he was going to beat them and sometimes have a smirk on his face because he knew he was going to win that race. The good, th- good theatrics in, comp- in competition for us, 
that like to watch it. Not so much for the person losing the race, but it was good theatrics there. However, this is not the image that Paul is painting. I read somewhere that in Greek games, athletes were so hyper-focused on the goal for the prize that they would never take their eyes off of it. Now, I don't know how true this is, but I read that these runners, in order to keep focus on the goal, would run backwards if they needed to in order to keep their eyes focused on that goal and not lose sight of it. This would be more of what Paul was referring to. Even further, he says, I press on. The picture is of that of an athlete that may be in that tight race with someone else and they stretch out with everything that they are to get across that goal, to win that race, to attain that prize. This was Paul's attitude of pressing on toward the goal of the upward call in Jesus Christ. Again, not looking to the departing of his soul to be with the Lord in death, but beyond to the resurrection of his body from the dead. Paul acknowledged that he was not perfect and that there was still sanctifying work that needed to be done in his life. Nonetheless, he pressed on because he did not yet lay hold of the prize. Part of his pressing on was forgetting what lay behind, the things that he suffered, loss of, the past sufferings of persecution, dwelling on past sin. He could not move forward with that weight of past sin on him. He acknowledged his the struggle of sin in Romans 7, but he did not let the sin of who he was in the past keep him from pressing toward the upward call. Verses 15 and 16, it says this, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if anything you have, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. What Paul is saying is simply this. Do not let small things frustrate the unity that you are experiencing. If there are secondary matters of faith that you do not agree on with each other, the Lord in his time will reveal the truth of the matter to you. In the meantime, remain united. Continue living by the same standard of truth. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, no confidence in the flesh. That's simply what he is saying there. Moving forward in faith as a point of application requires that we keep our eyes on the goal for the prize and never for a moment lose that focus. The things that you have given up to gain Christ, let it be just that, that they are given up and gone. Things that you may have suffered in the past in terms of persecution, no matter the degree, let it go. Follow the example of Christ. If you are dwelling on past sin, and it is weighing you down, let it go. Cry out to God for the mercy that lifts the weight of that sin. Listen, if it is something that you need to deal with in terms of confessing to God, then do it now, today. Confess. 
confess your sin to him. If there is something that you need to address with another brother or sister in Christ whom you may have sinned against or anyone else for that matter, if the Lord is prompting you to reconcile that matter, get to it today. However, if it is past sin that you are dwelling on, that the Lord has forgiven you of, quit returning to the vomit and move on in God's forgiveness. Focus on what his son did for you on the cross and what that means. There is a healthy reminder of past sin, which causes us to shout out in praise to God for where he has brought us from, but to sinfully dwell on the past, on past sin, as if the arm of the Lord is not strong enough to save us to the uttermost with no remembrance of that sin for his sake, therein is the problem. It's us, not God. We are focusing in on that sin. To move forward in faith, you must accept the forgiveness that God gives and move on in faith. As long as you are dwelling on the sin that God has for his sake forgotten, your joy will be stifled and your pressing on will be hindered by your hanging on to what God let go of. Remember his promises. If you are in Christ, you are his. Moving forward in faith means that we must put all efforts towards reaching the the goal. We must put in all efforts, should I say, toward reaching the goal. Think of the picture that the Apostle Paul painted. It was of a runner or athlete who was striving to reach the goal, to win the crown, not of one who was on cruise control through the race. Now, I am not preaching a works-based salvation. We are saved unto good works, which the Lord has foreordained for us. Do them. We do not do the works in order to obtain the salvation, If that is what we are doing, we are essentially offering to God filthy rags. The work of his son on our behalf is the only work that will qualify us. If we have gained Christ and our souls have been saved from God's wrath, then we are to follow the command of the apostle that is given in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What the Lord has given you, work it out for his good pleasure. Shall the evidence of your salvation through the deeds which the Lord has set before you for you to do. And lastly, follow the example. Verses 17 through 19, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Listen, there is again warning in there of 
staying away from those. And Paul says this weeping that are enemies of the cross of Christ. And he lays out what their fate is. We don't want to follow after those people. In fact, we want to expose those people. But what he is saying in verse 17 is to follow the example. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is the standard. He is the perfect example for us to follow. Philippians 2, 5 through uh, 11, the apostle Paul showed us that. We talked about, about the example that Christ set in suffering. Jesus Christ is the perfect standard, but he has given to us men that are, that we can follow, qualified men that we see in the Bible. And the apostle Paul, if there was anyone outside of Christ who could give the instruction to follow his example of following Christ, it was the apostle Paul. And then he tells us to observe others who are also walking faithfully. So the Lord has will place people in our lives even today that we can follow after who are faithfully following Christ. Now, in closing, the exhortation is this. We are approaching a new year, but do not take this as a New Year's message or a New Year's resolution. No sort of slogan here. If that's what you do, that's fine. But, you know, in the past, so many people have come up with slogans, and I don't think that they have taken the time at the end of the year to evaluate the slogan that they made, that they uh, put out there and to see that it failed. But the exhortation is this, that, yes, we are embarking on a new year. Tomorrow is a new day. But this is everyday life that we are to live. Okay, we move forward in faith in Christ. Every day is brand new, brand new mercies of Jesus Christ. As the days ahead seem dark, as Luke mentioned earlier, look ahead to the promise of resurrection. Move faithfully in Christ, obeying his commands, following his example. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life that Christ lived for us, the death that he died in our place, the wrath that he took on from God, his burial and resurrection for our justification. Remember these things. There is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you need to repent of sin, repent of your sin today. You cannot faithfully move forward with sin that is lingering in your life. Repent of your sin. If you do not know him, I pray and urge you today to turn to Christ and live.